<laughs> what advice would you give to a young artist that's... Shut up. Look, there's really only one question any of you want to ask. You want to know what it would take to turn you into me. Well, listen closely, because I'm going to give you the answer. In order to be a great artist, you simply have to be a great artist. There's nothing to learn, so you're all wasting your time. Go home. Why are you such an asshole? <laughs> no, that's a great question. No, really, it really is. I am an asshole because that is my true nature. Maybe it's everybody's true nature. Every single one of you looks like a fucking asshole to me, but who knows? The difference between you and me is that I have gained the freedom to express my true nature. And what could be more beautiful than truth and freedom? Secret Cinema, the postgraduate discussion section for your online film degree. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and this week we're rejoined by writer, director, and friend of the podcast, Tony DiBiase, to discuss Terry Swigoff's 2006 dark comedy, Art School Confidential. Before we get into it, I wanted to take a moment to correct three references I make during the discussion. First off, I make reference to a Robert Crumb comic where he writes about having sex with a woman who has drunk herself unconscious. I checked this comic after the discussion, and the woman is not actually unconscious, but rather in a drunken stupor, to the extent where Crumb is actually able to shove his hand into her mouth without any resistance. So, make of that what you will. Second, I mentioned Stanley Kubrick docking Malcolm McDowell's pay on A Clockwork Orange for playing chess with the director. I was unintentionally conflating two separate anecdotes, as Malcolm McDowell's pay was actually docked for playing table tennis with Kubrick. And third, during our brief discussion of the film Margaret, I claimed that the studio, Fox Searchlight, wanted Kenneth Lonergan to deliver a two-hour-long cut. Fox Searchlight actually requested a two-hour-and-thirty-minute cut. Alright, I think that's it for my errors, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. All his life, Jerome has wanted to be a famous artist. With high school behind him, Jerome embarks on his college art school experience with high hopes and aspirations. But being armed with talent isn't the only factor for success, and Jerome learns that sometimes creativity comes from a very dark place. Art School Confidential is a film that all three of us really related to, so our discussion gets very autobiographical. One of the film's most relatable elements was its depiction of classroom critiques, something that students of all creative disciplines will likely have to suffer through. In this first clip, we hear the sort of language and perspectives that are par for the course in art school. Since you can't see the art being criticized, know that Flower's piece does look like a bad Cy Twombly, and that's C-Y space T-W-O-M-B-L-E-Y, for those of you with Google, and Jerome's piece, done in pencil, looks just like him. Here's that clip. Now, let's get started on these. Who wants to comment? 
I like flowers drawing. Yeah, me too. It seems like she's trying to do something more than just draw herself. It's really more about the process of drawing. All right, now does anything else up here command your attention? Okay, does anyone have anything more to say on flowers, please? Yes, Jerome? Nothing. Well, nothing doesn't actually exist in this class, Jerome. What are you thinking? We're waiting, Jerome. I don't know, it just... It looks like a lame Cy Twombly imitation to me. It, look, it looks like she did it in about two minutes. <laughs> that is such bullshit. Just because her drawing isn't perfect, you act like it's automatically bad. At least it has humanity. Yeah, totally. Jerome, your drawing looks like it was done by a machine. Whereas Flowers... Flowers is full of playfulness and... And, and yeah, like humanity. What's so great about humanity? Now, if you've chosen a creative field, you probably also have a well-meaning relative that doesn't quite understand what you do. In this clip, from a larger scene that we only touch on in the discussion, Jerome's grandma talks about art with Jerome in a way that Carrie and I found hilariously familiar. Here's that clip. My friend's granddaughter paints little pictures on the shoes. What do you call them? Anyhow, she paints pictures of little animals and, and, and whatnot, and I believe the other children pay her for it. Sneakers. Isn't that what they call them? Anyhow, that's something I thought you could do, Jeremy. Finally, we wanted to play a clip of Jim Broadbent's character, Jimmy, as Broadbent gives one of the film's most interesting performances. In this clip, Jimmy tells Jerome what makes a true artist, and despite the questionable source, Jimmy's words are worth mulling over. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of Art School Confidential. I want to buy the rest of your paintings. They're not for sale. Oh, please, just tell me what you want. I don't want anything. I'm just fucking I lost. I thought you were an artist. I am, I am. You want to be an artist or an aficionado? An artist? What do you think an artist cares about? Does he think all day about fine wines and black tie affairs and what he's going to say at the next after dinner speech? No. He lives only for that narcotic moment of creative bliss. A moment that may come once a decade, or never at all. You think I'm wrong? Oh, fuck you. You know nothing at all about anything. Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about Art School Confidential, and we are re-welcoming back to the United States after a long uh, period overseas, well not overseas, uh, Tony. Hey guys, <laughs> Welcome back, Tony! Me. Glad You're to back. have you. Yeah, I guess it would glad be, to be here. over the equator. Over the yeah. equator, yes. Or under, <laughs> whatever. 
there's a lot of things you can Undoing say about geography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not. Yeah. Let's talk about Art School Confidential. Art School Confidential. Yeah. Bum, bum. <laughs> it's, I, I didn't really Art think about Art School Confidential SVU. <laughs> <laughs> College edition. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll start. Yeah. I love this movie. I hadn't heard of it until Paolo told me about it, and I just saw it last year for the first time, and for me, it, I mean, it combines a couple things that I can completely relate to. One is the idea of the struggles of doing and making art, and what it means to be an artist, and what it means to be creative, and so we've got that, and then we've got the... So that's kind of the art school part, and then we've got the confidential part, which is the noir, uh, serial killer, uh, mysterious part, which I'm always a big sucker for. So, and then on top of that, just to add to how great it is, we've got Daniel Klaus, who wrote the screenplay, and I'm a big fan of his. So, yeah, I loved it. All right, Tony. I agree. I loved it, too. I hadn't heard of it since... Um... We went over the list of before I left about what episode we would record together. So well, I think you suggested it, right, Paula? That yep. I should watch that one because I would like it. Hadn't heard of it. I'd seen. I remember seeing like the cover when I was, well, actually, two thousand six. Yeah, Blockbuster was still around. I can totally <laughs> yeah. picture it. They were still the around. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I loved it. I I agree. I think. I mean, I only went to film school for a year, but still, there were things, I mean, that we can all relate to to it, which was awesome. Um, well, and the main character only went for a semester, so. That's very true. <laughs> so, I'm him, basically. <laughs> but you're not in jail. No. I'm still doing all right. Good. Now, yeah. <laughs> not going <gonna> what? <laughs> but, uh, Melkovich is awesome in it. I always love him, honestly. He's so great. Yeah. I, I was just thinking... This movie reminded me of, uh, well, his performance reminded me of his performance in Burn After Reading. Yeah. I don't even know why, <laughs> but just like a movie that, that movie isn't that great, but his performance, just, I love it. Yeah, but, he's such an underrated comedic actor. I, yeah, I, he's so this, funny. I kept thinking about him in Being John Malkovich, okay. too. I mean, yeah. that's the go-to one, but he is really funny, and it's like, every once in a while people remember that and just, and when he shows up in something like this, it's great. He just I almost gets think of tones. him more as like a comedic well, and you guys, his best comedic role, Con Air. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nobody move or the bunny gets it. Okay. Yeah. You pretty, yeah, good point. <laughs> Every line of dialogue he has in that movie is basically a joke. And his death is the most epic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert for Con Air. <laughs> if you haven't seen I Con haven't. Air by now, then, then you were never going to see Con Air. I haven't seen it since <gasps> I was like six. Oh, okay. So I... Barely re even remember it. Totally rewatchable. Steve Buscemi is in that too. Oh, good wow. point. Buddies. Also, Steve Buscemi's really great in that movie. Yeah. Oh, anyway, kind of, yeah. so what? Why did you like this movie, Tony? Um, I well, I didn't know what to expect. Honestly, I didn't think it was going to be this funny, and I didn't know that it was written by Daniel Krauss, right? Who and he wrote Ghost World as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had seen Ghost World. I love Ghost World. I haven't read any of his like, graphic novels, mm -hmm. but um, I love Ghost World, and I yeah I didn't I thought it was gonna be more of like um, well how you were saying how this was like a like a Hollywood version of a Todd Salons film I yeah. kind of thought it was gonna be a little bit darker 
And, um, I mean, I know it turns dark, but it's just like, it's, it's kind of got that light undertone throughout yeah. the whole thing. So, yeah, I don't know. There were a lot of parts of it, too, that were just, like, personal things for me. Just, like, we were saying, like, what it is to be an artist or or even, like, the pressure to fulfill, like, uh, an artistic integrity yeah. for yourself and, and, like, how the external forces of how people view art, what it means to be an artist and... You know, I don't really, I don't consider myself an artist, but I have that, that drive to be. Yeah. Well, you but work you, in the arts, yeah. Sure. It's, yeah, it, and you create. Yeah. Yeah. In this I movie, see. I feel like it's really applicable to anybody who makes anything. Like, yeah. They, they do a good job of, like, lumping in sculpture and totally, other yeah. forms of art where it's like, yeah. And it's, writing. It's, they're so different in the, in terms of the actual details. True, yeah. But the broad community and the way in which uh, we see these art forms tends to be very similar art yeah. to art because art is one of those things that unless you're immersed in it, it does kind of look silly and strange from yeah. the outside. But they feel, I feel like they do such a good job of showing it from the inside, yeah. but making fun of it too. Like they kind of make fun of all the pretentiousness that can come with it or... Oh yeah. I think the, the thing I think of or the the thing that really sticks out about this movie is it's such like an insider movie yeah while being completely relatable across the board and across subjects like this could easily be about being a programmer or yeah. being um what does he say go to banking school yeah it could easily be about like any competitive <coughs> field where People are trying to stand out and make a name for themselves. But at the same time, this movie does a really great job of playing up the stereotypes or the cliches yep. that everyone knows about art school. Or, and it also does a great job of, of playing up the cliches and stereotypes of people who are on the outside looking in. Yeah, totally. Um, like the, the scene where the main character, Jerome, goes to visit his family and uh, his brother's like, hey, Jerome, so uh, when are you going to sell one of those paintings? Like, you got to get connected to the biggest guy in your business. That's how business works. Right? Yeah. You got to network. Got to get to know everybody. Or and I do, I do. I've, like, like, totally had that conversation right. with and, so many people. Oh, my God. Trying we, to give, just trying to give me good advice, yeah. which I totally appreciate. And we will talk about that scene more in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of. There's a lot of subtext to that scene alone. There's a lot of subtext to every scene in this movie. And, like, a big reason I wanted to talk about this, um, I love this movie, too. I wouldn't have made you yeah, guys what watch do you, it. Yeah, what do you think of it? Uh, well, and I came to this because very early on in high school, uh, uh, my friend group got really into Ghost World. And Ghost World was kind of, like, an absolute game changer for me in terms of, like, seeing myself represented on screen in some way not Are to mention Enid? i'm very much enid and honestly i realized <laughs> watching this time i was like i'm kind of jerome in this too and in like a lot of ways even in the ways where we were talking before about well, how, what you're basically saying is you're daniel Klaus. yeah but, because he his stand-in in ghost world is enid and probably his stand-in in this is jerome yeah and there's like there's some very unflattering ways that that comparison plays out but they're they're really honest and i do think it's not a totally perfect movie but I feel like the reason it's not perfect is because it's structured in a way that allows it to get those like very specific accurate points about art school film school any type of creative schooling yeah. that you'll get into mm. and I, I'm a bit, really big fan of Terry Zweigoff Terry Zweigoff as a director is really underappreciated 
Crumb and uh, Ghost World are relatively well known, but after this movie, he more or less disappeared. Like, he and he did, did Bad Santa too. Did I think he did that before? Yeah, uh, no, I, yeah. yeah, he did it oh, before. Yeah. But and Bad Santa is really famous too. Yeah, actually, but uh, so this movie in a way, sort of was like a career killer for him. And I always thought that was bizarre. I, saw, I remember seeing this in high school when it came out, and it didn't really translate fully then because I didn't, I hadn't gone to school for anything creative, yeah. and so I didn't get that, but it still was like an enjoyable cartoonish movie. I had a dark sense of humor, and it appealed to me on that level. But I'm just fascinated by this movie that is about the inside versus outside view of the art world and the fact that this is a movie that nobody apparently could relate to at the time it came out. Yeah, I was looking online. I think it has like a 6.1 rating on IMDb, but 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. That blew my mind. Yeah, when this came out, it bombed. I mean, like nobody really liked it, which is so astonishing. Really? Roger Ebert's like the main defender of this movie, or was. Yeah, and he, I think he... I don't think you like the murder plot. I think no, that... yeah, he oh, kind of he okay. kind of was like, unfortunately, there's a serial killer in this. But he and I actually wrote down a quote from his review, which I wanted to bring up later. But yeah, I couldn't believe that nobody saw this movie. And you're right, for Terry Zweigoff, this was a career killer. He yeah. did an interview where he How said, "Yeah, he basically said like this almost ended his career." <sighs> he did an interview with IndieWire where he said it was really negatively received both at the box office and critically. Everybody hated it. it um, he said, I didn't think it was so bad. It was certainly just <laughs> oh. as good as any any other film in the marketplace. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's a great film. So, like, wow. he, he almost stopped working entirely just because of this movie. Yeah. And all three of us are saying that we really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the key thing, and I'm really glad you brought up the, the Hollywood version of Salon's comment because i can see that this is the reason why of all of his movies this is the one that did him in because crumb is i i first time i saw crumb i was like 10 years old and so it was super disturbing and I visceral there's a scene in crumb this is a scene i always remember because it was the scene that when i was when i was 10 i was like i gotta shut this movie up i'm too young for this but um there he was talking about how he was sexually attracted to bugs bunny as a a little boy and he would keep a picture of bugs bunny in his pocket and like slide it out at school and look at it all day and um i remember being like i i do not understand i i this made me feel weird but but there's still that movie has 10 year old 10 year old paulo was exposed to so much oh i got started early like This, it's hard to get this dark unless <laughs> you practice. But from from unless you practice, you practice yeah. being this dark. Practice makes perfect. Um, Crumb, Crum, even though it's like that weird and it gets into like Robert Crumb's like incest comics and stuff like that, yeah. it has the through line of Crumb's family and showing his relationship with his brothers and how like the way they were raised kind of influenced them and so it's very empathetic in a very subtle way but it's definitely there and ghost world is obviously extremely empathetic like Mm -hmm. they clearly very much like enid there are people they hate and disdain (laughs) that movie blatantly blues hammer uh (laughs) terry swankoff clearly hates but yeah he likes enid and you like enid and you feel bad for what's happening for her but you also understand what's happening to rebecca and bad santa even has like a lot of weird empathy in it like Thurman Merman and uh, uh, and all those characters. Thurman Merman, god damn it. <laughs> but Art School Confidential 
does not really have that. Like, even the core love story is... Uh, it's one of those things we'll have to... I really want to get into it. The love like, story really does not... That's, like, one of the only things that really doesn't work for me. Yeah, and it's because there's, like, so much misanthropy and cynicism in it that the love story, do, it doesn't feel like anyone who wrote it believes it. Like, it's, yeah. it's less it's, of a love story and more of, like, a mutual... Yearning, almost? Enamorment? Yeah, it's, like, that's... it's very functional. It's very much a thing that gets plot... Points. Is enamorment a word? Oh. <laughs> I like it. It. it yeah. I. <clears throat> I. The woman who is the part of the love interest, um, Audrey, who's played by Sophia Miles, she just uh, as a character is kind of like the blandest character yeah. for me. She doesn't really offer up a lot, but. I want. I wonder at the same time on the flip side if that's purposeful because she's the muse, and yeah. the muse is supposed to not be necessarily knowable or relatable. Oh, yeah, you know, you're inspired by something. It doesn't mean that. Usually, if you're just inspired by the beauty of something, it doesn't mean that you know that something intimately. Yeah, well, and, very true. And I do. The one thing that I was kind of wrestling with during this was. The her representation in terms of we see her pair off with a lot of people throughout. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we see her pair off with um, various other artists, and there seems to be like this thread of she is attracted to successful yeah. artists. Yeah, and yeah. that is like probably. I wrote it, down art whore. Yeah, art whore is there, <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where it's like that's probably if there is one thing that's like really kind of sticks out in a negative way for me in this movie it's that it, it, and it comes naturally Our with the Lord. film cynicism but it's like yeah, it's a very unflattering portrait of essentially a sympathetic character and it's not unflattering in a way where it seems intentional it seems unflattering in a way where they're just like well there are women like this type of thing and there are other archetypes that are women in this movie she's just the most prominent one and gets the most screen time and so it just it come it, it doesn't necessarily come across well, but that's really the main sticking point I would have with this movie is her. Is part. her? Do yeah. you think it has anything to do with her father? Because remember, he was like, "Oh, how cool it would be, or how cool it must have been to grow up with a dad like that, a famous artist." And she's like, "Oh, please, he's barely famous." Oh yeah, and he wasn't successful. Or successful, yeah, sorry. that's right. I think she said that successful. Is, yeah, that is fair. I mean, it's still so cynical. Got some daddy issues. Yeah, it's maybe. still cynical, but it still it does it does make it a little better it's yeah okay i i would perhaps i don't know yeah i tony i like that i I wonder good tie-in um well going to going kind of back a little bit let's talk about jerome so jerome's the main character you start off seeing him getting bullied in school yeah the first shot is a point of view shot from jerome's point of view of him being punched in the face (laughs) it's like the very Very first first image yeah. yeah Yep, and then you see him drawing pictures of the bullies getting poop dumped on them from the <laughs> toilet. <laughs> and then you see him getting beat up again, and then he you see him kind of transitioning to high school where he's drawing a picture to impress a girl, and then, of course, that girl has a boyfriend, and so on and so forth. And um, I thought that that set up Jerome as kind of like a tragic character yeah pretty well well and even like if you, in, t- in terms of like the first three things he is getting beaten up he draws something that is like his way of like i i can get some sort of revenge out of this experience and then that 
inevitably leads to him getting beaten up again. Yeah. And it's like the movie in a nutshell and right there. Yeah, is and, but I also... Art, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, his art, even though it's like this whole idea of he's gonna be a great artist and art is what's gonna redeem him and art is what's gonna get him love, art doesn't really do that in this movie. Yeah. And that's... Uh, art, as uh, beca- the definition of what art is becomes more and more nebulous as the movie goes on. And so in these opening minutes, we're seeing perfectly reflected that, like, like especially with that girl, he draws that image, he draws that, like, per- really great drawing of her and her douchebag boyfriend, which this movie is perfectly cast with douchebag men. <laughs> yes. Like, every, yes. every douchebag man is, like, fully realized in the yeah. seconds that they're on screen. Yeah, God, Adam Scott is so great. Oh, my oh, God, yeah. He is. Adam Scott's role. Uh, but like, why are you such an asshole? It's <laughs> actually a really good question. No, seriously. <laughs> well, and actually, okay, well, I want to go back for a quick second okay. to the beginning of the movie, where before it shows him drawing the picture of the girl with the douchebag boyfriend, he gives a class presentation. Oh, yeah, which is the first dialogue, right? Yeah, the first dialogue or this important dialogue. <laughs> yeah, and he's talking about how oh, he yeah. admires Picasso and Picasso. Basically, it's to sleep with as many women as he wants. And so, for Jerome, you kind of see that his, at the very beginning, his motivation behind being an artist is not, I mean, it is it is about success, but for him, it's about being able to win women over. Yeah. And that is a huge through line for the movie. And I thought that this movie did a really great job of exploring how masculinity plays into art. Yeah. Oh, totally. And because he has a hard time... Well, he never wants to admit that because I think the first time... I forgot his friend's name in that. The guy, he was in Grandma's Boy, the tall, lanky guy. Oh, 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 yeah. oh. Joel something. Yeah, Joel David Moore. Yeah. But Joel. I don't know his name in the movie either. I don't, yeah, I can't remember. I don't know what they, they said his name, honestly. <laughs> He's but the remember, guy who keeps dropping out. That's yeah. His, like, yeah, the dropout. Yeah. 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 But remember he's saying, like, oh, so you are, you're coming through, you're trying to be, like, a, what does he say, like, a pussy magnet or something through art school or plow through plow through art, art pussy yeah. or something, yeah, something like, like that. that yeah. And he's like, no, I really do want to be a good artist. He's like, yeah, so that you can end up getting women. And he doesn't want to admit it, but, like, yeah. they even keep bringing it's that like up It's like his side, side motivation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I love that little button on that in the end when he goes to meet with Angelica Houston's character, who's an art teacher, oh, yeah. and she she's like, let me guess, you want to win to be a great artist? And he's like, no, I want to do it to impress a girl, basically. And she thinks that's, that's exciting. Sweet. Yeah. And we've, where we've seen it come from, it's like, not really sweet, but by that point, the fact that he is pursuing art for anything other than his own pure selfish interest makes him stand out because that is essentially what they keep saying. It's like, it's art is insanely competitive. The mm-hmm. fact that you care about anything other than yourself while you make your art is almost like an uh, anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because art is a very selfish thing because it's all about your vision, yeah. Yeah. your perspective, what you think should be expressed. As Marvin Bushmiller says, in order to be a great artist, you simply have to be a great artist. <laughs> and if there's no, there's no more solipsistic concept than that. Yeah. It's like, you are great, and you are automatically great, and you, if you, you can't be taught to be better if you're already great. You are great. You can just, just refine great, yeah. your talent, yeah. and that's it. And Well, and that, that's a great segue into... Um, the quote I wanted to pull from Roger Ebert's review, 
He starts his review, uh, it's in the first paragraph, he says, I'm not sure you can learn to be an artist. Artists are born, not made. And the real reason to study the arts is to have fun, learn technical skills, network, etc., fall in love, etc., and do the work you probably would have done anyway. That being said, I highly recommend college. <laughs> yeah. which, which, of course, he did. Yeah. Um, but I, like, what do you guys think of that? Do you think that artists are born, not made? Do you think that you can't learn to be a great artist? I think, well, the key to it is that by the time you enter college, you have a set series of experiences and abilities and you, when you go into college, you're essentially there to be molded into, mold what you are into a career-driven version of yourself. Mm. Like, you, you have the thing you want to do, and college is ideally supposed to make you as good at your version of it, so that when you leave college, you can bring it in the real world. But the problem of that, when you apply it to arts, is that being the best at a certain style of art doesn't necessarily translate into a job at all. Like famously throughout history, I mean, go to the easiest possible example. Vincent van Gogh was not ever successful during his life and was famously very upset about that. Uh, (laughs) And talk about tragic romances. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. So yeah, with, with this movie, what they're really trying to show, they're really trying to emphasize that point. It's like, uh, Roger Ebert really nails the key thing of the, the movie. I mean, I went to film school, I, uh, not film school, but I went to the University of Michigan, and I studied film for four years, and thanks to my transfers getting fucked up, it was a five-year degree. <laughs> uh, so, uh, But during that whole time, there, there were people who'd come in, and you could just tell that nobody had ever told them what they had to do they just were like i saw ghostbusters a lot when i was a kid yeah i'm gonna be a director and there are other people (laughs) who had been insufferable since the first day of high school and who had been spending high school preparing to come to college to like show off to people and then there and the reason i think of myself like jerome is because i was definitely the person who came to to college and i was like yeah i'm ready to be a filmmaker i'm ready to learn and i'm ready to be successful and i'm gonna once i get the opportunity i'm gonna make something i'm gonna blow everyone away and then be a true artist yeah and you quickly learn that like college is not the place to find out you're a great artist because nobody in college truly knows who a great artist is right it's at most of college is looking back at what has already been successful and analyzing we get to here but the point of college is that you learn so eventually you create something from learning you're not and so with all this pressure put on success there and in that moment it's kind of it's just missing the point it's like people getting caught up in a game that they don't need to get caught up yeah and it's like the um, i mean i hear this all the time like people saying like well you can't teach talent but you can teach skill yeah i mean i think that very much especially with like any type of art in school is like maybe like you're born with a natural talent either to recognize great work or to know that even to be able to produce it but you can also be taught skill i mean they elaborate that a little bit in this, when John Malkovich is like, well, you need to experiment and try different styles. I mean, in that sense, yeah. you can 
grasp skill from school, but but then even still, after he says that, that when, he, when he makes a bunch of different things, he's like, it's it's hollow. It's not right. You. It's You're not imitating you. people, exactly. and it's like both of those things are fair fair criticisms, but they're Absolutely. also like yeah. it's <laughs> very easy to get both of those criticisms. Well, yeah, and how the fuck do you? You hear that, and then you're like, but I don't know what kind of artist I am. Right, like, yeah. Well, I don't How know do you... what my style is. Yeah. Right, but like, I, I, to an extent, I would agree with Roger Ebert, where artists are born, not made. Where I think that the most important thing about an artist is that you have a clear, strong voice. Okay. That yeah. you know yourself well enough to know how you feel about certain things and you can express that. Like that yeah. is what being an artist is. And I think anyone can be an artist if they really know themselves and know yeah. how they feel about something. But sometimes that takes way longer than being in college or even graduate school or, yeah. you know, like you might be in your fifties when you're like, Oh, I really feel this way about this, and and, yeah, and that's well, how I know how, myself. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, that's something that I think, for me, I definitely struggle with where I'm like, is this really what I want to be saying? Or like, oh, is this yeah. really represent Absolutely. me? Um, and I, st I don't think I'm there, but I think that part of it is practice. Yeah. Yeah. And being comfortable expressing even what you're experiencing, whether or not that is... 100% what you really do believe in. I think too, like at least for me, like like going through, like 20s is such a crazy state of life where you're discovering and learning so much just because you're finally out. and It's just, very fluid. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, I mean, I can tell even like something I believed in when I was like 19, 20 is completely different now. Or yeah. it has yeah. shifted in a big way where like something I made back then I would be like, I would not express myself in no, the same yeah. way at yeah. all. And it, I, I always tend to like shy away from like, well, I don't want to keep putting things out and and making things when I I know that's not really who I am. I'm figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. But that's an important part of the process. I, right? You know, that's a really good point, Tony. I always think about, like, to go off of that, I always think about musicians. Yeah. People who, when they're like 22, they write a great song or they create an album that becomes really famous and then they have to live their whole life oh just yeah. performing that one song or that right? one album and that's like maybe that's all they're known for or maybe they still continue to create art afterwards but like that's the thing that they have to keep revisiting yeah. and I wonder how they live with that you know right? like well like, that's essentially what happened with Kurt Cobain with yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit was he was, he was in his early 20s because he died, he died at 27, 27 right? yeah. yeah. So by the time, let's, oh God, so that, he, that's, he was like 23, 24 when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit or uh -huh. when it came out, so like that. And then in within, like already by that point, Three by the time years, he's yeah. getting to the point like where we're at, where we're like, oh wow, I'm, we're adults now. We yeah, gotta like yeah. plan for our futures and stuff. And people are still like, play Smells Like Teen Spirit yeah. again! <laughs> gotta be like i mean like not to be too bleak but no wonder like Aww. yeah it's you like it's that's i'm sure that happens it's happened with many people too where people who are much yeah, like less some, successful like uh, just to to go back to that like i look at stuff that i painted or created even like a year ago and i'm i'm like oh I'm so beyond that now. Like, you know, I just, it like, I feel, feel a little embarrassed. Yeah. Or, or I'm like, 
oh, that's not who I am anymore. And so, especially with music, because music is so much more accessible yeah. and, like, easy to repeat. Yeah. I wonder how, peop- you know, musicians deal with that. Yeah, like, do, you, do they become numb after a while where they're like, I don't even, like, I'm not even thinking about what I wrote this about anymore. Yeah, like, like, after performing it for even 15 years or however, I mean, even maybe five years, yeah. it's like, I don't, I don't even think about that time like, anymore. Like, uh, Bob Dylan, wasn't he, like, 21 when he wrote, like, a Rolling Stone? He was really young. Yeah, yeah. he was super young, and, I mean, that song is classic, and, and it's, yeah. it's one of those songs that's great because it's kind of relatable across all ages but he's like in what his 70s now i can't imagine he's like oh yeah i'm really excited to sing like a rolling song for the eight millionth time you know well bring up dylan is a good thing to bring into with this because dylan to compare to another famous artist tarantino is pretty much has built his career on uh understanding other references and then combining those references into a thing that he gets to claim as his own yeah Yeah. uh and he does so he doesn't he has he has a style and he has a voice but his voice is hundreds of thousands of other voices like combined and his skill is as the as the assembler uh and so with art too that there's a certain degree which you can say that you can't just like throw paint on a canvas your first time people be like wow i've never seen a shape like that you're a great artist yeah there's the expectation (laughs) to some degree and we'll get into this with the outsider art part of this movie but there's the the assumption that your art is great because of what goes into it right and not just like what other art forms are influential but we have that whole thing where um the the person and that's actually that's the biggest thing really uh the uh, one of the biggest issues of this movie is that sometimes the art itself is 100 percent irrelevant what matters is the person who created the art the person who created the art makes the art interesting not the other way around and it's like and it's a really fucked up thing but it's honestly a huge issue with the art community and the art world Absolutely. where uh and um this is Huge, I, yeah. I, I can even say flat out there's going to be other movies we'll cover on this podcast <laughs> looking at the same issue but this one like what what do you have in mind like my kid could paint that oh, which the yeah. whole point of that movie is that issue yeah. um the issue of ownership and what it means uh to be an artistic type versus like even in this movie uh to bring it back to the movie jonah is considered a successful artist making outsider art because it's like, wow, it looks like you've never seen anything before. Right. How Never novel. seen a painting How before. How yeah. And so it's, it's like, it's condescending, but it's also like, well, because you're clearly uneducated, this has value from an uneducated point of view. Yeah. That's oh. the outsider art moniker. But the second they know he's a cop, he's not an artist anymore. Yeah, they call him a pig. He's a pig. Yeah. And his art, like, but that's it. Like, his art never changed. Nothing happened Nothing. to his art. But Everything happened to his identity. Person. Yeah. Well, and that yeah. gets into a way larger argument, which they kind of end the movie with, where John Malkovich says, uh, should we judge an artist by what they do in their personal time? Does it have any less value yeah. if they're, like, an anti-Semite or a murderer in the case of the movie? Well, and the um, ironic thing and, is, and that uh, that uh, argument has been so prevalent lately, especially well, because of like 
Bill Cosby. Yeah, but the ironic thing with that is that he's saying, is it worth any less because of an anti-Semite? And my point is that in the art community, it's inherently worth more yeah. if the person is an anti-Semite or a murderer or a rapist or whatever, because you're like, oh, what kind of painting would a rapist make? It's the same reason why we John Wayne Gacy's paintings oh, are things- Or Hitler. Or Hitler's paintings. Like, they're neither of them are good artists. They both have, like, John Wayne Gacy has that- thing in his art where you can tell he has mental problems just by the way his <laughs> paintings are shaped but people will still buy them and they, they they'll pop well, up every once in a while that's why uh uh gw has a, an art career yeah exactly you're like <laughs> what would the what would our worst president paint <laughs> <laughs> which is like a lot of self-portraits dogs, dogs <laughs> flowers i like i though i will say though i like him more as an artist than as a president yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the film when he when they're showing jerome in his cell and they show the modern art magazine that was his painting right on the front yeah. of yeah. audrey yeah and that was thrown in the trash so it's like the second that be, he's known as a murderer it's like, oh, now that now people care about it. It's trash yeah. and it's valuable. Yeah, exactly. yeah, good point. Well, and like, you when remember, uh, to expand this to like a really a recognized great artist, when we went to uh, the Seattle Art Museum, we saw that exhibit of like sketches of Picasso pieces, where like, yeah. because Picasso's great, even his practice is is yeah, museum right? yeah. And like, think about like, think about all the artists who are like, like, even just someone like Edward Hopper, who's known for, like, Nighthawks, you don't see Edward Hopper's <laughs> sketches in the museum. Oh, I'm sure they're worth money, though. Yeah, I'm sure they're worth money, but Picasso is, like, it's 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 just a sketch. Everyone has yeah. to make a sketch, but it's because of the size I, of the person who makes this, the sketch. This, uh, so I did, a, in college, I did an internship at an auction house, a fine art auction house, and one of my tasks when I worked there was I had to basically do inventory of all of the things they were going to auction really soon. Okay. And I remember they, I was just, a lot of it was just like porcelain bullshit. <laughs> like I remember there was like a rhinoceros that was a little, a uh, tiny rhinoceros that was porcelain and yeah. it was worth, you know, thousands of dollars wow. and clocks and all this and like teacups and stuff. But I finally, I ran across this plate and it was just like a ceramic plate, but it had this stick figure type uh, person drawn on it. And I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? And I looked on the back and it was a Picasso. And just by knowing that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a Picasso. I'm holding a Picasso. But yeah. it was just a, a ceramic just plate. A plate. Yeah. Just a ceramic plate. Huh. And so some, it is a lot sometimes about yeah. just the name, yeah. the name behind it. Like if that rhinoceros, that little porcelain rhinoceros that had uh matisse written on the sure. bottom i would have been like oh my god yeah. i'm holding matisse rhinoceros yeah, you know that's, that's a good point <laughs> so uh, yeah i uh yeah i think that the name does uh say a lot but i i didn't really think about it that way paula where if the person is subversive their art is more valuable yeah well i mean that's that's part of the idea with crumb like robert oh, yeah. robert crumb um he is like his, his sexual fetishes are a very big part of his art and it's not like oh my art contains sexual fetishes it's like i masturbate to my own stuff after i draw it like <laughs> it's like real deal like uh i mean robert crumb even has a comic where he like has a he goes on a date with this woman and she gets so drunk that he she passes out and he fucks her and he like wrote Whoa. a he wrote into his own comic Whoa. like and it's like 
it's public yeah. knowledge. This is like a thing that was published publicly. Like I can't I have to emphasize this. Like public. And so like and so you'd think like the art world does wow. not the art world does not follow the rules of the moral world. No. Where like oh, no. like there's there's no time and you off extend that behavior. To the, the, yeah. You could extend that to the film world. Oh, absolutely. Too. Roman I mean, Polanski. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and I do and I do 100% Woody agree Allen. that Woody, yeah. someone's art is separate. Like it should like a art a piece of art is separate from the creation. You should be able to appreciate a good work of art on its own merits, the whole death of the author thing. But we don't really live in a world where it's possible to truly separate everything no. from the author. No, and not Mary, now. like you said, like Bill Cosby, I think that's a huge one. Yeah. Really, yeah. Especially right now. Yeah. You can't watch that show and feel the same. I mean, I can't. Have no. Them, so yeah, or listen myself. to his comedy no, albums. Yeah, exactly. Just knowing, like, what kind of person no, he is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and well, and then, it's, I mean, same thing with, like you said, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen. I mean, and that's interesting because I have an easier time separating those guys from their work. Well, because their voice is separate from the story that they're telling. Yeah. And also, weirdly, the, both of them are like very into like depictions of women. Yes. Like considering their crimes are yes. against, against women, women. Yeah. Yeah. like Roman Polanski, like Carrie, you talked a lot on this show about oh, your I love, love of Repulsion, repulsion yeah. and Repulsion is entirely like a point of view movie from experience of a woman who is hates men because yeah. she doesn't can't trust men and it's well and rosemary's baby rosemary's yep. baby yeah. yeah and woody obviously woody allen's movies have a lot of like men being terrible to women oh, too yeah jasmine too recently yeah. <laughs> yeah um okay this movie uh delves a lot into the idea of genius and what is genius? Um, they talk a lot about Picasso, or as Jim Broadbent's character calls him, pick asshole. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which I thought was great. <laughs> um, but I want to hear from you guys, what do you think is genius? Like, what? who would you consider, consider a genius, or what would you consider makes someone a genius? Well, one thing I wrote down during this movie... Because they get into it, and it's it's going to take me a second to make this leap. But they talk, uh, they don't get into it, but it's kind of inherent with the idea of art of the importance of capturing the zeitgeist of being the most relevant thing. Yeah, I, I, I guess this is a weird example, but do you remember how when Too Many Cooks came out and everybody in the world watched Too Many Cooks? Like it was on the news, Too many and cooks. like you'd read interviews where they're like, "Yeah, we just made this thing, and everybody's watching it." Or now. even uh, Dad Boy. But Dad Boy's different because that's a meme. I'm talking yeah, about like a, like it's not a, it, Too Many Cooks was a thing that people slaved over and had a specific vision oh, sure. for and presented it, and it seems like. Also, like it seems partially like it's like well it could be any period of time you could like this or uh, like oh of course people like it but it's like you have to remember how many things are similar to that that don't get successful at all yeah. like people don't and it's so weird like it has a Lars von Trier joke in it and like millions of people more people than know who Lars von Trier is have seen too many cooks sure. it's yeah. uh and so there's a big part of it where art is just being successful and being a genius is just being able to be the person who creates the thing that uh, it perfectly defines the era that's why we i i'm not going to say him as my genius but most people could easily say david bowie is a genius because of david bowie's insane ability to be the, one of the definitive figures of every decade he was alive during 
Like whatever he did, it was, it not only defined fashion and music and, and art, but it also he was paying attention to what else everyone else was yes. doing and used learned those boundaries to understand what he well, could and, do. But with, then influences as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I would say that he was definitely someone who knew his voice. Yeah. yeah. He knew himself enough and what he thought about things and he made his voice relevant in each decade. Yeah. I mean, like his last album, he made it a statement about death. Uh, yeah. And a farewell to his fans. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. So, but getting to, I guess, the point, uh, I'll go to the Marvin Bushmiller, Adam Scott's character's quote, where he talks about how he is an asshole because he has gained the freedom to express his true nature. And this is kind of a tail, uh, tail wagging the dog sort of thing, but I feel like the, a real way you can tell someone is identified culturally as a genius is the fact that their personality, despite their personality, they are successful. Their art cancels out the effect. Are you talking of about Kanye right now? <laughs> I'm not intentionally, but that's like a good example. And but um, I, I'm trying to think of another director, like a direct. Oh, like okay, perfect example, Kubrick. Okay. Kubrick is one of those people. Have you ever heard a story about Kubrick being a good person or a no. fun person yeah. to work with? No. Anything. Every no, I just kept, like, I always think about him making um, Shelley uh, Shelley Duvall Shelley Duvall cry. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I always think of uh, I think it's Clockwork Orange. Kubrick would always play chess on set, and he had Malcolm McDowell play with him. Uh, and then docked Malcolm McDowell's pay for the time he played chess with Kubrick oh on God. set. Like, what? shit like that. But you'd never be like, well, I'm never going to watch a Kubrick right, film no. again now that I know that because he's a genius. Yeah. His talent outweighs... It's the same thing with Hitchcock also. Yeah, a certain true, amount yeah. of horrible personality traits, will you will somehow make yourself forgive them or push them down because what you're seeing is just so transcendent that it overwhelms everything. It overwhelms you, it overwhelms them, it overwhelms the reality that they are consolidating into their piece of work. And so I, I, I guess then Kubrick and Hitchcock would be my go-to easy genius uh, references. Film geniuses. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I always think Kubrick... I tend to lately always think Paul Thomas Anderson just because there's not mm -hmm. a film of his that I don't yeah. Yeah. not like. But honestly, though, I am like honest. I'm trying to rack my brain of who I've ever really considered a genius. I don't. I have a hard time kind of doing that. It's because, a hard word to yeah. subscribe to somebody. There's a, a lot. It's yeah, a, there's. It's a heavy. It's a loaded word. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people I really respect. Like one of the first people I thought of, but I was like, I almost feel wrong calling him a genius because it's not the type of word that I think of with him. Is Werner Herzog. Like someone who has oh. like a very clear voice and does a very clear type of thing, but it's not. I don't think of it as like, oh, he's a genius. He's like, he's not intellectualizing what he's doing. It's more primal and more gut level. And I don't think, like, the problem with the genius title is genius kind of implies a certain academic or, like, yeah. intellectual status. That's a good point because, you know what, I guess I would have said um, David Lynch. I've, yeah, I've said that before. Yeah. But you're right, but he is more primal and he kind of understands, like, I know he's always said, like, I don't understand why people have a hard time accepting art to be uh, like to not understanding art uh, like that there doesn't have to be meaning behind it yeah. when people understand that life has no meaning and can take that as a chaotic experience mm -hmm. that art can be the same way so i feel like i don't know i guess i've applied i've i've thought david lynch is a genius but even that i don't know i 
it just it's such a heavy word to really apply yeah. to someone. Well, and sometimes a lot of times genius goes hand in hand with wacko. <laughs> yeah, <know>? that's true. <laughs> and I would say that David Lynch is kind of a Absolutely, wacko. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, yeah, really weird. I think of genius and wacko. I think of like Prince. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, like yeah. a person totally. who's like, you're like, he's not necessarily like an asshole. But no, he's definitely one of those people like, where you're like, whoa, now that you have power, this is what you want to do. <laughs> or, or, like, or like Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the elephant man's bones. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. God, in his, his house. Forgot it. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, that's. Well, who, who would you say? Who's a genius to you, Carrie? If you have one. God, I, I have a hard time. Uh, having loyalty to, to things and people um, because I'm I'm pretty fickle and opinionated. Mm, sure. <laughs> but I, God, I don't know. I'm trying to think of musically someone that I would think of as a genius. That's what I was trying to think of too. Or That's... even, I mean, even film wise. Um, you say Paul Verhoeven? <laughs> I do love Paul Verhoeven. I think that he is consistently great. Yeah. But I wouldn't consider him a genius because he doesn't write most of his his movies, right? Yeah, I don't, no, I don't think so. Yeah, and... If, if any, yeah. I have been known to say that I think that... And I'm, I'm not saying this person is a genius. I just want to say that right off the bat. But <laughs> I've been known to say that I do think uh, Justin Timberlake is <laughs> the ultimate in entertainer. I think that he's funny... He can sing well. He dances. He can act. Yeah. I mean, he's like he's the got a lot. yeah. He's kind of across the board, like a great entertainer. I would pay good money to see him in concert. That's true because the dancing thing. <laughs> and you got he's, a lot of singer actors, but the mm-hmm. dance is huge. But I would not call him a genius because like he has done some shitty yeah. things. Not not like he's a bad person, no. but just um, he's been in some bad movies. Yeah. He's made some. Music that I'm like, eh. Um, but I do think that he has a great talent. But And that kind of goes back to what we were saying, where I think he has great talent, but I don't know what his voice is. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Um, God, I don't I don't know who I would say is a genius. Uh, yeah, that was really a hard question for me, so I... I'm trying like to think so artistically. <laughs> um, gosh. Well, an artist that I have really come to respect recently... a a couple American artists that I've really come to respect a lot of their work are people like um, Peter Bloom, who did The Rock, which you can see at the Chicago uh, Institute of Art, uh, or the Art Institute of Chicago, or you can Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously it's better in person, but you're probably not listening to this podcast on the way to the art. Yeah, yeah, right? Or you don't live in Chicago. Just Google it. Uh, (laughs) Google it. Um, so or Peter Bloom, yeah, Peter oh, yeah. Bloom, or even someone like Grant Wood, who he's known for American Gothic, but I don't think American Gothic is his best painting. I mean, he's done, he does some great landscapes and like American scenery, and um, God, I don't know. I just uh, there's so many artists I could like totally crush on and and just but then to say gush genius, over, right? But yeah, but then genius, it's like well, I don't know, right? I know. Um, but I will say this, and this, um, goes back to the movie to kind of just segue back. There's a part in the movie where 
Um, they're talking about an artist who he gets in trouble with the law because he does these word paintings. Yeah, one of them says legalized genocide. Yeah, and that, uh, <laughs> another one of them says kill a cop for fun. Yeah. <laughs> I heart your suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and that the art in that exhibit is like there's a lot of artists who use words and letters in their their paintings but the artist it reminded me of who is an artist that i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i don't like is christopher wool and christopher wool he does huge massive size paintings where he'll just put one word or two words but he'll separate the letters okay. um so like for example if he was going to do the word kill it would be K-I, and then beneath it would say L-L. Okay. Um, and it's usually black and white. It's very simple. Sure. And as much as I understand what he's going for, like, why is he a known artist? Why yeah. is he famous? Yeah. Why is his work recognized as, like, great art? When... Was he the first to do something like that? Or... Yeah, and that goes back to that John Malkovich line where he's talking about his paintings, and he, in the movie, does paintings of triangles. I was one of the and first. I was one of the first. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, maybe Christopher Wool was one of the first to do these big word paintings. Yeah. And I actually, when um, I had a chance to go to New York City a couple of years ago, and I pushed the group I was with to go to MoMA. Okay. I had never been there. I really wanted to go, and it's the only time I've ever been, and there was a Christopher Wool exhibit in MoMA, Ooh. and I was so disappointed. <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, of all yeah. the art I could see in this museum, I'm seeing Christopher Wool. It's like, no, I want to see anyone else. Like, I just kept thinking about uh, Matthew Barney's movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cremaster. Cremaster uh, 3. And I was like, man, there's some been some great art in here. And I'm seeing Christopher Wool. Like, yeah. oh, I just want to rip my hair out. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, like, why is Christopher Wool famous? You know, I, I could easily get a giant canvas and write the word uh, fuck right. and just do F U and then C K sure. and like maybe splatter some random paint drops on it and like boom I've got a, a Christopher Wool knockoff am I gonna make like 20 grand on that one canvas yeah, well, and it... depending on the person who's critiquing you it could be this is clearly a Christopher Wool knockoff you show no no creativity with it or like it's so or, derivative or someone could be like she clearly understands what Christopher Wool is going for but these added splashes of that color there's a new in, there's <laughs> new intention there's passion where yep. Christopher Wool's is is it's the so opposite cold. yeah like you can you can say anything like <laughs> art is so okay all right. Well, we're just we're gonna use this to segue into the movie. Uh, let's talk about. I want. I got your gears turned. I well, because I want to talk about this because this is the most relatable part of this movie for me. I want to talk about the critique scenes, which is funny because this is kind of a, a film critique podcast. Yeah. Well, and that's why I really let's get let's get re self reflexive in here and talk about the critique now. Have all of us been through some sort of a critique yes. before? Yes, definitely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Tony, uh, what was your experience with it? Um, I remember the first one I can really think of was when I was in high school. We had a we had like a TV station, and that was like when I kind of like really got into filmmaking and stuff. 
and I remember, let me think, the first one. Oh, I, like, worked really hard. We had it, one, one of the first projects was, like, everyone had to make a music video to the same song, but could do whatever they want to. Oh, that's kind of cool. It was a cool project, and I worked really hard on mine, and I liked it a lot, and, like, I knew, like, I didn't want to... I don't want to come up cocky, but I knew mine was kind of, like, the best in the class, but, like, my <laughs> teacher still tore it apart. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, but, like, it, not, it was more, it was, like, he wanted to teach us how to critique, like, yeah. constructively. So, even though he was, like, I liked it, but, like, you could still point out, um, like, a bunch a of mistakes. Things. Yeah, sure. totally. And compare it to what other people did well, or then compare it to, like, how maybe I did something similar, but better. But either way, I mean, I remember, like... I wanted to impress him more than anyone else, and like the way he tore it apart, I was like, "God damn it! Yeah. Like, I can't win." Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, I don't know, but the critique, but that was the same for me. It was like I, it was a good experience because you need to learn how to take. Yeah, you have criticism. to be criticized. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and then it, well, how would you grow otherwise? Yeah. Absolutely, and that was that's exactly what he was trying to teach us. So. It was successful. Yeah. And well, and, yeah, for me, I mean, I'll just stay on the typography rant. Um, I took a typography class at the Art Institute, and it was um, an adult learning class. And uh, we had an assignment where we had to make the word look, or it had to express its meaning. Okay. So, like, for example, if you were to do the word disappear, you needed to design it so it looked like the word disappear oh, was disappearing. That's cool. Disappearing. And I can't even remember what words I did. Um, but, like, the criticism, um, the way it worked is you had to say something you liked. Okay. And then something you thought they could improve. Right. So you couldn't, yeah. you, you know, you couldn't say, like, I don't like this or I think you did this wrong. And there were a few people in my class who the words that they represented, they spelled wrong. You know, and it's like, how do you, like, I couldn't even say, like, how do you oh, say a nice you, thing? yeah, like, oh, uh, I thought you did a great job expressing the word stretch, but there's, uh, no, there's... like, K in stretch. <laughs> and, or, there's you know, there's a T in there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, how do you give a good critique when you can't yeah. even, at the base level, say, like, hey, you got to start over. Yeah, you know? totally, absolutely. <laughs> and um, that's just, like, my most recent example of, of group critique. And I, f I feel like most uh, of the... And a lot of group critique centers around fear. Yes. Because you're so afraid of what other people are going to say about you. Yes. And that you don't want to say anything mean about other people. Uh -huh. And so there's this, like unspoken pressure yeah. across the room where everyone is like, <gasps> you know, they're kind of right. just holding their breath for somebody to say something negative yeah, so that you can be like, yes, <laughs> you know, now I can say something negative or like, uh, now I know that, you know, people might say something negative about mine. It's like, <gasps> you know, you're out. just kind of yeah. holding your breath. So yeah. I feel like, and most of the critiques I've ever been a part of, same type of format though say one thing you like and then one thing that you notice that could have been done differently and i think that plays into the fact that everyone knows you're just self-conscious i mean everyone yeah. i mean you're you're vulnerable at that point especially yeah. if you especially if you're in a class if okay specifically if it's a class and you know some people are taking it much more seriously than others so some people are really trying yeah and others are like well this is an assignment that i had to do yeah so you don't want to break someone's heart who put everything into it but then at the same 
like time you want to kind of tear apart the person who is like I didn't care about this. Oh god, and that was totally awesome. That's so I'm so glad you brought that up because that was totally my experience in my typography class where it was an adult evening class. Okay. So some people were taking it to just learn about typography, yeah. you know, like th just to get themselves familiar with it. Other people were taking it for work and I was taking it to get a certificate. So everyone had different motivations. So you'd never really know like where people are coming from. Yeah. So again, how do you critique when you have no idea where everyone, if everyone's on the same page? Yeah, yeah. totally. Well, and everything you guys are describing, it's, I'm just thinking about it now. And when I did improv, improv, I was critiqued harder than anything else I've ever done, including every class oh, I was in man. college. Really? It's, yeah. Rough. It, it was one of those things where it's like, it's like I would be like, oh, I have to come up with something now. And they'd be like, no, stop the scene. Stop. Oh. Why did you think that was a good thing? But with <laughs> when, I, but when I went to film school, when I went to U of M, you guys are saying like, <clears throat> they'd say, say one good thing and say uh, something could change. Yes. It was just like, what are your thoughts? Just say anything. And so it had that whole pressure Rob. of like, oh, I don't want to say anything bad, but it had that added thing of no, like, no rules, no rules at yeah. all. So <laughs> if, as soon as someone did say something negative, it was like, Boom. all right, we're going to Yeah, the yeah. floodgates are open. So the scene in this movie where, where Flower makes the lame Cy Twombly imitation and yeah. Jerome calls her on it, my, I had, okay, one of the first critiques I remember having I made a movie, and it's like a 25-minute long movie. Um, it was like we had a, a four-month semester. I made this, uh, me and my friend Chelsea, we made a movie that was long, and it was really complicated. And when we screened it, it was still basically a work in progress. There was like sound missing. Uh, we only could screen up to like the first 10 minutes because they were like, yeah, it's not done yet. There's a lot more. And before we showed ours, this kid in our class showed this movie. I think it was called like Lost Dog. And it was him... And he filmed it mostly by himself, but every once in a while had his friend film him. And it was like his stuffed animal disappeared, and he was looking around for it, and then eventually he found it. And it was about three minutes long. At one point, he fucked up the editing so bad that the dialogue, he accidentally inserted the dialogue twice into the movie, but slightly off, so every word would just, like, play over and over again. And it was, like, one of those things where you're like, I, what the, what is happening now? Like, like, I can't hear the dialogue. And afterwards, everyone, and it was also, it was, like, shot on just, like, a cheap handheld camera. It didn't look good. It looked like something that someone shot in a couple hours on a weekend. Uh, and everyone in the class was like, I really love that touch you did with the sound. It was really experimental. And I love yeah. the camera work. And I thought the stuffed animal was so cute and stuff like that. And then I showed mine and I was like, listen. And you guys probably like storyboarded. Yeah, and, and we got nothing but shit on. Like nothing. And it wasn't even constructive. It wasn't like, I see what you're going for, but you didn't consider this or I don't understand this. Will the rest of the movie fill it out? It was like, well, your sound is bad. And I was like, I told you it's not there. And it's like, well, and the movie doesn't make sense. I was like, there's 15 minutes of the 25 minutes that you didn't see. Like you saw, oh you saw the setup. And oh, I, you only screened five minutes of it? I screened 10 minutes because it was all we oh, had sorry. like yeah. available to screen. Okay. We sort of like had to put the rest in order. Oh, okay. And okay. I was getting like, and it's one of those things and that kid got an A on his movie and I got an A on my movie just like in, in Art School oh, Confidential wow. where it's like, everyone's a winner, baby. And like, it just, <laughs> it really, and it's like, and, and, yeah, and so yeah. How do you grade art? And and I get I get the whole thing of like obviously there are some people who end up in those classes and you don't want to punish them, but 
I feel like if we're going to do that, we should at least have, if you're going to be an arts person, you take a math class, you can be like, well, uh, I'm not really a math person, yeah. so give me an A. I tried. Like, you can't, that's so fucking... I attempted. Like, I hate yeah. that I chose a field where it's, like, so subjective whether or not I'm doing yeah, a good job. Absolutely. It's really frustrating. Well, um, it's hard in that setting. I, yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard in, in all settings because your audience, like you said, it's subjective, so... You might show it to one crowd of people who yeah. absolutely love it, and then you show it to another who just tear it to, to pieces. God, and that reminds me of that story you told us right before we started recording, where you met Todd Solins and you <laughs> didn't even know it. What did he say again? Yeah, it was when Dark Horse was screening at the, the independent theater I was working at, and he came up and he was like, how is Dark Horse selling lately? And I was like, oh, well... You know, actually, it's not that popular. <laughs> and he kind of just hung his head. He's like, oh, okay. Actually, you know what it was specifically? It was a screening where he... That makes so much sense now. He was there for a Q&A afterwards. And no one told me that it was him coming up. And I thought he was just kind of late. So it was a specific... Everyone knew he was going to be there. And and he was like, is it filled in there? And I was like, no, actually, there's only like maybe 30 people. And he was like... Oh, like, I guess no one really cares. Yeah. That but, was you a, know, he's, yeah. yeah, but he's made a career out of uh, making movies that not a lot of people see, so. Yeah, and that one, I feel like, I don't know. Was that, was that a, was that a popular one of his, Dark Horse? No. There's a, a quote that Jim Broadbent's character, Jimmy, says that is really specific to all the, the artistic experience and it not really tying to the business or success of it, but... Uh, he says, oh, is it the, what do you think? Well, the artist lives only for that narcotic moment of creative bliss. Uh, it may come yeah. once a decade or not at all. Yeah. The idea yeah. that, like, uh, the really the only thing that can truly drive a person who's an actual artist is that moment where that the mean. thing that hits is in their head successfully translates onto their medium yes. and they can see what they did and they know that even if no one else gives a shit that they know that the thing they felt is there someone yeah. could see it someday and understand it and that's like I'm not successful as a filmmaker, but every once in a while when someone does see something I've made and they're like, hey, I liked it, it means a lot. It yeah. does, I don't have to be successful. I just want to know that I reached somebody. Oh, someone, someone tried to engage with it. That is, That means so much to an artist, and it's so hard to find that sometimes. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. That's totally true. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that he said that it's uh, like the narcotic quality of it. Where, yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah, because it's really intoxicating. Oh, yeah. I mean, for especially like for me, when I, I often paint and I feel so aimless, like I'm like, well, I'm just painting to paint. Yeah. Or I'm like, I don't know where this is going. But every once in a while, I'll start something and I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly where I'm going. Yeah, right. I know exactly what I want to do with this. I know how I want to finish it. I'm just going to knock it out. And it's just like, you know, you Paolo, then, Paolo right? will try to talk to me and I like don't even hear Get him. Get out of my way! <laughs> he gets Get out so, of the house! He yeah. gets so frustrated because he'll be like, Carrie! Carrie, you listening! And I'm like, oh, what? What's happening? What? Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, that was one of my favorite quotes from the movie too. It's just the, what does an artist live for? Yeah. Or what does an artist care about? When you hit those stages, at least for me, I, I get that a lot when editing and like yeah. I'll get into the same thing like you just get into that rhythm and you feel it yeah like that I feel like those are the times that reminds you like oh this is why I like doing this yeah because you know, like, there's so many times so where you're like times, oh why do I do this why yeah. am I killing myself to do this <laughs> totally. yeah oh yeah 
let's go back a little bit to talk. I don't want to pull us out of our conceptual dialogue, but I do want to talk about the movie. Yeah, because it's been over an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should talk about the movie a little bit. Um, so I want to talk about um, just all of the people in the movie. Yeah, the types. So, so this movie, as I think we mentioned earlier, it does a great job of laying out all of the stereotypes and cliches of people who are artists or that you would encounter at an art school or, you know, encounter in life. And in this movie, uh, I wonder if part of the reason this movie has such a great cast is because Ghost World was such a success. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I know John Malkovich is one of the producers on this. Yeah, and I'm pretty like sure that. he's one of the producers on Ghost World also. Oh. Because he's well, a, he's a Chicago guy. But he's also a big fan of yeah. Klaus. And uh, so I think with this too, is like he wanted to be involved and... Uh, Steve Buscemi is obviously in there as a like he's like oh yeah I, I, I had a great yeah. role in Ghost World sure I'll just show up for like a, in there. what like two days of <laughs> yeah. filming yeah. Oh, yeah, um, sure. and a lot of these parts too are really short Angelica Houston couldn't have Oh, I'm sure she day. did, like, one day of shooting. Yeah. yeah. The cast, it's it's a little bit that, but it's also just really well cast. Yeah. Like, some of these, some of the bit parts, too, where, like, these, they're actors who had, like, this is their most successful role, and they pretty much disappeared into the ether after this, but they're great. It's exactly the type of thing. Like, I was talking about that... The, the girl in the very beginning who Jerome does the drawing for and her douchebag boyfriend's like, yep. yeah, it's all right. And it's like, that guy is perfect. Yep. Like, I, how he did is. they cast the guy? And then the other guy that comes up yeah. with a backwards baseball cap, <laughs> yeah. like, you're all right, Platts. <laughs> <laughs> like that guy. Or his nerdy friend in high school. Yeah. yeah. You know, just yeah. everybody is Nick Swartzen was really good. Yeah, he ba is barely in it. Oh I mean, yeah, Nick Swartzen. Oh, so what's it, uh, Tony? What's his uh, like stereotype? So he's like the in the closet gay guy who's in fashion design. Yep. Is it about Jerome when he's like, well, maybe you have psychological issues that makes you not comfortable with sex your sexuality yeah. yeah. and then punches like the dick. Yeah. On the <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, he's got a great bit part, and then like Ethan Suppley. Ethan yeah, Suppley. Oh Ethan my god, Suppley. Really good. he's so he is so good as the roommate. Like we yeah, did butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ethan Suppley for you listening. He is from Butterfly Effect. He's the, the, the yeah. He's yep. the goth roommate. <laughs> He was on My Name is Earl. He was in Road Trip. American Titans. the Titans. American History X. Um, he's been in like everything. He's great. He is great. And he was awesome. His stereotype is he's like the film guy. The film guy. And oh my god, is that it's like dead on film? There are like people who come to college to get into Hollywood. This is exactly what they're like. I had like, a, I had a classmate that was him to a T. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely, People who are like, yeah. and I swear to, even down to the fact he's like with his, it's like grandpa, I need that money. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like it's these are all yes. people who are like had rich families and that's how they could afford to go to like University Film of Michigan school, yeah. and get go to 
study film. Like, you have to have money to throw away if you're going to study film. Um, but they would go and just be like, they, they would have their notebook and they'd be writing down, they'd be like, yeah, I'm having lunch with this guy at noon. We're going to talk about his bit part in my stupid fucking gangster movie that I make. Because they all make the same movies, these guys. Yeah. But they just, they take it so seriously. And I've never, I've never known anyone in my age range that ever set up a cork board full of note cards that ever made a good movie. Like, like if maybe when you get into like the real deal business, that's a thing. But as far as I remember, when you write a screenplay, you know the order the scenes happen in. What kind of movie are you making where you're like, ah, the scene could just go here? I I clearly didn't. Well, in the movie, he has to change it because the strangler strangles someone. Yes. Yeah, but still, like, but he's like really rearranging. Yeah. How do I fit this in? Well, he's trying to write a movie about. A strangler who hasn't stopped strangling people yet. Yeah. So it's a bad idea. Yeah. I also do love when they show the, his first clip of his movie where the guy's like <laughs> the killer is like holding the rope and like everyone will suffer yeah. and it's like so like dead. And he's just standing on the campus quad just doing this yeah. line. And yeah, it's 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 so dead on. His Well, and then we've got so we talked about John Malkovich, he's a professor. He's like the has been stereotype where yeah. he had his heyday where his triangle paintings were the it painting and now He's trying to still make them the it painting and Oh, I thought he was never successful. I thought he was the the failed academic like the academic Okay, maybe because that's because he's a failure because the whole thing with Lorenzo, go fuck yourself, right. Lorenzo! <laughs> he's like really he's just trying to get his triangle shown anywhere and nobody. Well, will maybe take that's them. it. I mean it could kind of be both. It, yeah. The movie kind of played it uh I was wondering the same thing. The only thing that made me that could convince me that he was a has-been was he had a really nice house. Yeah. He had, like, a yeah. re- like really nice... Well, and he was th- he was talking to that other professor and was like, oh, well, are you going to be busy in five months from now to come <laughs> yeah. to my gallery like, showing? I know? Yeah. You yeah. know, just, like, bragging about his success. <laughs> yeah, to totally. a sculpting professor who doesn't give a shit. Which, yeah. There's always one of those professors, yeah. too, who's like, I've seen too many shitty kids to like this yeah. job anymore. I think anymore. in that be- the beginning of that scene, he's like, another day, another dollar. Yeah. <laughs> Don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorite jokes. Yeah. So there's also a, a character who is a kiss ass, and he does mm-hmm. things like in the painting class, he paints a portrait of John Malkovich, the professor. Uh, and I'll, I'll admit, I when I had my first film class, I totally bought my film professor's book, and oh, I never, yeah. I never read it, but I bought it where I was like, yeah, I'm gonna read this and I'll be able to talk to him, yeah. and he'll think I'm smart, and uh, like, no, that was not gonna work. <laughs> did you, did you? Do that as a way to kiss ass or more? No, it wasn't a kiss ass thing, but it was like, I mean, the example they give in the movie is, I looked up some of your artwork and it was amazing, and I I looked up some of his writings, and, but it was just like, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 well, in the heyday of Google, I mean, who doesn't, it's very easy, who doesn't do that? Yeah, but the kiss ass is still a type, there are definitely people who, like, buddy up with the professors to, like, a, a, like a degree where the professor has to know, right? Yeah. Like, look, it can't be... It, like, the professor in this movie knows, and people in real life can Well, tell. and then there's the Eno character. Eno. Oh, yeah. What was his... Was his name actually Eno, or...? Well, they called him at one point... They called him I, the Boring Blowhard. Yeah, I just remember, um... What's John... Sandy, the... Uh, John Malkovich's character yeah. said, "You know, why aren't you doing?" The oh assignment? yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Well, my work has nothing to do with form or color and or line or, or structure." <laughs> yeah, I'm more interested in exploring. What does he say? Some... Like the existential 
the process, or yeah, it's what is it? Something about aesthetic. It's uh, uh, yeah, he, the he process makes, of developing an aesthetic, something yes, like that. I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, process yeah, of developing. Yeah, God, an and his artwork was such like he, <laughs> well, he his was self, his self portrait was three white pieces of paper with the his, the word Eno printed on them in different fonts yeah. on a piece of cardboard, like <laughs> really, really basic. And then the next piece he brings in is that like thing where it's like silly string, silly string cardboard, on cardboard yeah. well, but this one isn't finished yet but i thought the class would appreciate my uh my process my process yeah. right <laughs> jesus there's mom oh yeah the mom her last, well, her last kid has just left the school and so she's decided to explore her creative side yeah that was almost verbatim <laughs> yeah. from the movie yeah yeah and i've taken so many classes with moms i think which... i'm finally blooming <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, and then, um, we've got Joel David Moore, who we kind of already talked about. You said he was from Grandma's Boy, which yeah. that's definitely how I know him, but he was also an Avatar. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, but he's the dropout, and he's kind of a ladies' man, too, or he's, like, trying to be a yeah, ladies' man. Yeah, you kind of can't tell. He doesn't fit into a, a perfect bubble of, of stereotype. Yeah. Because yeah. even as the dropout, I mean... Yeah, well, and we've socially, got socially. Who is he? You know. Yeah. Well, and we've got Scoot McNary making his. Was it his film debut? I don't know because he's not listed in he's the opening. Such rides. a little baby. He's a little baby. Yeah. He's good. He doesn't have much, but he he's like he's definitely confident in the scenes. And yeah. he's, I think he's just like army jacket guy. Yeah. He's, he's a he's a type because I he's, he's, he, rem- he rides a skateboard. He reminded me of a kid who I had film class with who would say things like, "I looked up at the moon and I thought." useless like <laughs> okay. it reminded me of, like there are definitely those types of people where it's like where like they're so anti-establishment that it's like you can't even understand well, that's, what maybe about. that's a stereotype yeah. he's the anarchist yeah he's the anti anti-establishment um like he openly like mocks john malkovich yeah. class and stuff well, like that he's the one who yells out at adam scott why are you such an asshole yeah, yeah. He, calls, so, he calls the cop a pig and spits at him yeah hours away yeah. God, i will say this i love scoot mcnary yeah i like he's him a lot yeah i do you watch halt and catch fire no i is it should i is it worth yeah. it it's okay. I mean, okay. It's, it's not like mind blowing. Is that right him and Lee Pace? Yeah. Is it, is it, well, like and it. I love Lee Pace yeah. too. I always, I always think of Scoot McNary from another film we're going to do on this podcast, Killing Them Softly. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's great in that. Too. Aw- that's like that for movie. me, that's his breakout role. Yeah. Because that was absolutely. the first one where I was like, "Who is yeah, this guy?" I thought the exact same thing while watching that. Yeah. Oh, I love and um, he was in what was it called? Monsters. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. He was really good in that too. Well, and with a name like Scoot, yeah, uh, for like a name like Scoot, it's gotta be good. Yeah, you know, for like six months ever. Well, when Killing Them Softly came out, I kept calling him Scott McNary. Yeah, and someone just... was like, no, "It's Scoot." I was like, "You're full of it." Like, <laughs> Look at the credits. Dude. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I, uh, and then also we've got Jim Broadbent who I plays. Love I love yeah, yeah, Jim Broadbent. Always. If you don't know who Jim Broadbent is. Um, you've probably never seen a movie before. Uh, he you never was saw in... Brazil, which see Brazil. God. Yeah, oh, he's in Brazil. I think of him. He's in Harry Potter. Slughorn, right? Yeah, he's the Oscar-winning actor from the film Iris, which nobody remembers. Yeah, <laughs> he is Bridget Jones' dad in Bridget Jones' Diary. Oh, wow. um, God, he delivers the best line in the Harry Potter movie uh, when he's giving the eulogy for oh. the dead spider. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. But what is the line? What line are you talking about? I do. Um, I know that I can picture that scene. Our bodies may decay. Yeah. But our <laughs> I love how he talks. Lingers on. Yeah. yeah. He's so great. Um, oh, but anyway, he boy, plays boy. he plays Jimmy, the bitter and cynical uh, for, oh. former artist. I guess. Yeah. He's still an artist, but he's like the bitter alcoholic. Like the, yes. the, the that's, I mean, that's the guy the that's yeah. like, oh, you want to be an artist? Well, are you good at sucking dick? <laughs> I like, was an artist. Look, like look how look at me. Look how successful I am. Like, yeah, as he's like living in a shithole and doesn't have a job. But he ends up being, just spoiler alert, uh, he ends up being the strangler. Yeah. Well, and in relation to Jerome, he is the true artist. Yes. Yeah. Because Jerome kind of just steals everything from him. Yes. Credit for being Definitely. a serial killer and takes all of his paintings and calls them his own. Because they show Jerome trying to imitate his painting, right? But he just gives up. Yeah. yeah. He, just he, can't, up, he can't get it right. Yeah. yeah. He's trying to do his own style of okay. Jimmy's painting and it just isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, we've also Tragic got story. Yeah, we've also got uh, Quato from Total Recall. This <laughs> is a, a real bit part. Nothing really interesting about this character. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've so got there. we've got Matt Kessler who he plays Jonah. Jonah is um, he is actually an undercover cop, but you don't know that until the what last third of the movie. Yeah, and he is the quiet outsider. The, like, simple uh, artist, the guy who people are like, have you never seen a painting before? <laughs> yeah. But everyone just loves his uh -huh. work. He, Matt Kessler, he... Um, Kiesler. Kiesler? Yeah. Oh, am I saying it wrong? Yeah. Um, he was in Scream 3. Uh, he was in Last Days of Disco. I Yeah, God, yeah, Last Days of Disco. I always think of him from TV because... He He's was, in a lot of TV. He was the middleman on the show of The Middleman, and he was on an episode of Dollhouse. Yep. And I haven't seen this guy in anything. Matt Kiesler is from Sour Grapes. Yes! Oh my god, <laughs> another movie that we're going to cover on the podcast. That was the best possible reaction to yeah. the Sour Grapes. Sour Grapes, I, I look forward to... But it's Larry David's movie? Yeah. Oh my god. Really bad, right? It's really bad, but okay. in a, a it great is, way. Okay. It's like, it's painful to watch how, watch Sour Grapes, just like how sometimes watching Curb, it's painful to watch, but turn... It up to 11, oh, you know, man. where you're watching and you're like, oh! <laughs> the thing with Sour Grapes, not to detour too far, but it's just, um, it's directed by Larry David, uh, not a known director, no. and uh, <laughs> very, much, yeah. very much comes through. But who's, the main, who's the main guy? The main guy is Steven Weber. And I, I, he's great. Steven Weber's great. If you, are you watching iZombie? Because he's the no. villain on iZombie. Okay. Um, God, he's that been in so much. Really You'd know him if you saw him. It's okay. like he's recent tons of things. It's just really tough because he's he's such a character actor. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So going back to Matt Kiesler's character, he's this outsider. So should we uh, start back up on what it means to be an outsider yeah. in the art world? Yeah. Do you want to give like a rough definition, like a, an outsider's definition of what outsider art is? Sure. Well, so there's this category of art, and actually, I I just read an article this past week saying that the term outsider art needs to be abolished. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the category of outsider art is people who they were not formally trained as artists. They basically took it upon themselves to express their thoughts artistically 
and they told like no one about it. Okay. Um, so most of the outsider art is like people being discovered after they've died, oh, yes. or one... like committed to insane asylums, okay. or John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> yeah, or um, like even Vivian Mayer. Which oh, she, yeah. okay. she would kind of be considered sure. an outsider artist because she wasn't famous when she was alive, but she was clearly an artist, but nobody knew about her. Right. I think, like, the one I think of is Henry Darger. Yeah, Henry, Henry Darger is, like, the He's the go-to. Is he the custodian? Yeah. He okay. made the 10,000-page book about the battles of, like, the Vivian girls and all that stuff. That's yeah. what I was thinking of. Okay. And that's where the Vivian girls band got their name. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Anyway, so... Outsider art, like, nowadays, it's really hard for someone to be an outsider artist because of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, or because, you know, as I said earlier, anyone can really be an artist as long as they have a voice. So you don't really need formal training to be an artist or to even True. be successful. Yeah, yeah. But there is still, like, this movement of outsider art where if you... we Actually, when we were out uh, west, we went to... I think it was... Was Milwaukee, a, I thought. Oh yeah, it was in Milwaukee. They had a whole exhibit of outsider art, and it, I mean, it oh. was there was some where you're like, "Yep, but someone who had some I know uh, mental issues <laughs> painted it," and then there were others where you're like, "Oh my god, this is a fucking masterpiece!" Like, wow, wow I can't believe someone awesome. who never even held a paintbrush before yeah. painted this. But or, the key thing is that. There are some of them that are masterpieces, and they're not in the gallery. They're in the outsider art yes. wing. Because the whole concept of outsider art is loaded with inherent condescension yes. for people who did not bother to either do it the correct way, the cocksucking way, yeah. or the way of, I went to school, and I through school, someone discovered me, I made yeah. connections, and I did all this stuff. And so... It's this yeah, idea. It really does need to be abolished. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really yeah. offensive idea, and it's inherently trying to put classism yeah. into art. And um, in this movie, they really explored it a lot. We kind of mentioned before that when he's just the weird guy in class, Jonah's outsider art, which is like a two dimensional painting of a thing, and then there's like a white border around it, and then just a, a monochromatic. Background. Which, by the way, I didn't mention this, uh, Daniel Klaus. Yeah. So he, this movie is based around his experience at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Yeah. And those paintings of Jonah's are his paintings from when he was at the Pratt Institute. Oh, wow. Yeah. So oh, they're like actually cool. his paintings when he was in school, which is pretty cool. Wow. That's pretty cool. That, that is, is awesome. But like, I, and I love too that he was like, he made his own art the shitty yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's nice. I love how much Daniel Klaus's like handprint is all over every frame of this movie. Oh yeah, but um, but yeah. So this idea that he makes this thing where it's a two dimensional piece, and everyone else like like the, the one of the criticisms they give Jerome is. Your drawing looks like it was done by a ma machine, aka it's perfect, and they're like, boo, we don't want that. But they love Jonah's thing, and as Kerry said, he gets the compliment, how did you paint that? It looks like you've never seen a painting before. And um, and so everyone loves him for this, and they're blown away, and the more he does it, the, like continues that same thing, people are just, they, they say, they, people can't even give him a good reason why it's, it's the best, that just everyone loves it. And then... 
the second he's revealed to be a cop, the second his ID he's ID to something other than just like a naive guy who accidentally right. made great paintings, but he's a cop who intentionally made these paintings because he's a bad artist that has to have cover, then it changes the story yeah. and it's gone. Because at one point someone did say it was like Jonah's accessing some like innate childhood like wonder or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. But it's like that's interesting, and yeah, and actually, you mentioned that is a perfect thing to bring up because there's a lot of that with art, where art's uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, yeah. And so the way of interpreting it, there's so much presumption put on something, yeah. And so a lot of times, Absolutely. there's there's that whole thing of like, well, it's like this, it must be for a reason. There must be like a strategy here, oh. and I'm gonna be the person to seize the strategy. I'm the person who really appreciates this artwork instead of like, can you tell me why you did this? Like, I it's interesting, but like, what is your goal? What's the end point? Like, uh, like th th there's, I mean, obviously, like that you can't apply that to everything. Like, what's his name? Donald Judd, who does the, the oh fuck that guy, the, the metal layers. <laughs> I can't feel like. What are you going for with this? To be like, I'm fucking stacking a bunch of metal shit on the wall. Like, what do you want? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's what I did. Or John McCracken. Fuck that guy. Yeah, that's uh, the guy, actually. John McCracken. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, outsider art is... Um, it's this weird way... It's kind of... It's like a, a, a lower level of art. Like, a yeah. lower tier of art. Which, you're right. It, there is a, a condescension associated yeah. with it. Um, Especially if you said, like, there's masterpieces in that wing. Yeah. And, and oh, not, God, there were some beautiful pieces. But they can't be recognized like that. They have to be recognized Weren't there as some, outsiders. like, Haitian pieces, too? Well, like, and there, cool. were, yeah. there were a lot of sculptures, and, you know, it's not like those people learned how to, you know, learned how to hold a wood uh, chipper exactly the right way yeah. or techniques or whatever, but they'd made these gorgeous pieces. And, and actually, if... Uh, Listeners, if you're curious and you live in the Chicago area, there is a free outsider art museum here in Chicago on Milwaukee Avenue um, called the Intuit Museum. They actually have some Henry Darger. Yeah, they have there. a Henry Darger room oh, cool. um, that you can go in and see a lot of his like original pieces, which is really great. But I wonder if they would be for uh abolishing the outsider art term yeah. well the, they they like it because they try to build it up they try yes. to make it uh, they they really respect it as an art form and it's outsider they're trying it, to give it a name yeah but okay. it's like it's a gallery devoted to that so you go see it but it's not like hey come to my back room and i'll open a book and show you some pieces i found it's like <laughs> yeah. no this we're giving Dedicated it the real artistic okay. experience you get to you see it the way that you would see any other art. You, it's not presented with condescension yeah. is the key. And, uh, yeah, that's a... It's not too far from the Woman Made Gallery on Milwaukee, which is all women artists. Ooh. Anyway. Um, okay, guys. What do you think? Um, have we exhausted talking about this movie? Yeah, do you have anything you want to talk about? Honestly, no, I, really, I feel like we've covered... The at least like the general consensus of what this whole doesn't what it? this movie embodies. Yeah, yeah. if you, I feel like we talked around the movie and we didn't yeah. talk about the movie. This is our autobiographical episode. Everyone <laughs> yeah, learns a about bit, the, yeah, learns about us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> learns that we have some some grudges. <laughs> yeah. Guys, we're we're deep. I I certainly come across as fairly bitter in this episode. <laughs> 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 Laugh it up, laughing boy. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna oh. stomp on your on your intestines. <laughs> your shit comes out your eyes. 
<laughs> I'm gonna yeah. shit on your grave or whatever he says. Also, yeah. well, I do wanna, I do wanna. Classic just... lines from Jim Broadbent. Oh, so fucking good in this. I, like he just, I, yeah, he he really, I like. Has he been in anything in the last like couple of years? Jim Broadbent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, there is. Um. Oh man, I feel He's like still kicking it. Uh, something weekend, I feel like. Or, or Lay late, weekend? Lay yeah, weekend, yeah. Oh, that. yeah, the, the classic old person movie. Yes. <laughs> Never saw it, but I just saw like, him on the poster. Like, anyone over 50 was like, oh, the greatest movie. I will movie. love this, yeah. <laughs> That's like, my parents keep ta- talking to me about the the second best marigold. I knew ex- you were going to say Exotic uh, old person hotel yeah. or whatever it is. What is that? Best exotic marigold hotel? But it's the second oh, one. It's the second one now. The second God. one. Yeah. All right. Oh, I, I did see some quick things I did want to mention real quick. Yeah. Um, first off, this is a really short one, but anyone who saw Ghost World would remember the scene in Ileana Douglas's art class where she shows oh. her college short film, Mirror, Father, Mirror, and I couldn't <laughs> help but think of that when they showed the experimental version of the Strangler movie yes. in this, which makes me wonder if Daniel Klaus hates experimental film, <laughs> because he has every right to, because that is exactly what every college experimental film is like, yeah. for the most part, where it's, there's like some, I there were definitely kids who I saw who made really great ones, and st- honestly, one of the best short films I've ever seen was made by someone I went to school with and but like most of it is like very literal didactic like here is a symbol like they show like yes. the, the Nazi imagery yeah, and then right. she's in a pool and she blood gets poured out her and there's worms yeah. it's like <laughs> so painfully literal uh, I want to also point out one of my favorite just like bit characters not for the actor or anything but just for like how I just I, I don't think I've seen this I see this all the time in real life but I don't think I've ever seen it in a movie which is just the fucking asshole old guy security guard who's like in his like clearly in his seventies and it's still just a piece of shit <laughs> like like obnoxious guy and I totally even forgot that that guy was a character in the in the movie I just like assumed he was an actual security yeah guard. yeah he's from the, there's like the whole thing where he's like bro. he's just get out of my building he's yelling at the yeah. kids and then he is like he yells at uh, Jerome when Jerome goes to drop the painting he's like are you drunk yeah. and he's working that crossword puzzle and he only found one word on the crossword puzzle is so sad I was like I can see that guy's pathetic life just from the details of like his yeah. less than a minute of screen time and then the one other thing I did want to point out is that with Ethan Suppley's character of the film major, there's this element where he he's talking to his grandpa and he's getting money from his grandpa to fund this movie. And he has a scene where he shows the grandpa the experimental edit. And I have to imagine this is perfectly representative of so many meetings between directors and studio heads oh. where they're like, uh, this is not what we thought you were going to make. Uh, like the whole conversation where he's like, yeah. it's symbolism, Grandpa. Yeah. And it's like, I paid for a movie with guns. guns. Yeah. Like, I just, well, it's called The Strangler. Yeah. And he's like, there's no guns, he's a strangler. Yeah, and, and it just made me think of, this is a weird comparison, but it made me think, we just rewatched Margaret. And Margaret is, oh, yeah. uh, for me, Margaret is an absolute masterpiece. But part of the fact that, it, part of the way it's a masterpiece is because it's, three hours long it needs a ton of time and when 
Kenneth Lonergan signed the contract to make that movie. Part of the stipulation of the contract was it had to come in, I think, under two hours or something like that. And so he delivered this um, this masterpiece to them, and they're like, "Well, it's yeah, it's great, but it's not two hours. How are we going to market this movie?" And so they like just cut it. They there was like a legal battle where for years they just kept trying to edit it down. He's like, "There's no way they could edit it where it preserved what the movie was." And so eventually when it did make it to theaters it was like i think they cut half an hour out of it but it was still too much and so people were like it's good it's interesting but it's not fully successful and then when you see with the extra half an hour people are like it is one of the greatest movies of this era it's like oh, one man. of the defining That's american films one, right the yeah bunch of people yeah it's yeah. really great uh i'll put that in the list for you but um but i'll say if you watch margaret and you don't know what you're supposed to be looking for you might miss the entire meaning of the movie I don't know. It's, I, I think okay. I, th- I think you'll like it. I'm not gonna okay. say you'll like it. I wasn't sure if I liked it. Okay. But I do like it now. Yeah. Okay. But because I, of you, you. It was kind of like I don't. Uh, this might be a, uh, a kind of a slant comparison, but it was kind of like when I watched Mulholland Drive for the first time, where I was okay. like, I don't know. I don't know what I just watched. Like, yeah. is that what was I supposed to get out of this? That's fair. And then I talked to a couple people about it. Paolo included, and I was like, oh, that's what they're going for. Oh, that's what that meant. Yeah. That's what that meant. Okay. And so after I watched Margaret, I was like, okay, Paolo, what, 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 tell me what's up. <laughs> and he told me, and I was like, oh. And, okay. And I, afterwards, I remember I like, I took a shower and I was like in the shower, just you know, putting shampoo in my hair, and I was like, oh my god, I just remembered this part from the movie, Ooh, and then this awesome. part. Yeah, love and, that kind of experience. And so, yeah, okay. the, it, I, I'll say that on Paolo's great recommendation for Margaret is that, you know, it's one of those movies where you might watch it, but afterwards you're going to have to, like, okay. either think you, about I'm it or watch it and then yeah. I'll look, it, with look it up. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, and one, one last little thing. I love the implication in this movie. Uh, there's a scene where they go to, I think it's, it's, it's Marvin Bushmiller's opening and Jerome is the bartender and Jerome oh, and, and uh, uh, Jonah comes up and asks for a Budweiser and he says, we have Hogarden and Stella Artois. The implication being that Stella Artois and Hogarden are just Budweiser for pretentious people. <laughs> yeah. I really love that. Because that's right. exactly what it is. It's yeah. so true. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. The first one he says, too, right? Yeah. It's like the exact type of, like, really specific shit that, like, it, like I, that I do love in this movie. Yeah. Daniel Claus is so good at that. Okay, I'm gonna, um... Skip to my teachable moment, right. and it's less of a teachable moment and more of a highlight. I want to talk a little bit about Daniel Klaus. So he wrote this movie. He wrote uh, Ghost World. He has another movie coming out that's based on another one of his graphic novels oh, cool. called Wilson, uh, and Woody Harrelson is going to star as Wilson. Pretty excited about it. Awesome. Um, but he is... An amazing artist. He, if you have not checked out some of his graphic novels, I highly recommend them. Um, some of my favorites are actually his newest graphic novel is excellent. It's called Patience, and it's about um, it's a time traveling romance. Um, the thing I really love about Daniel Klaus is that he is cynical yet hopeful. There's that like 
that cynical optimism to all of his works and theirs. But the other thing that's really great is he adds a surreal element to everything. It's just, he, and he's an excellent storyteller, a great writer. I mean, if you saw Ghost World or read the graphic novel, then you know, you know what I'm talking about. One of my other favorites of his is um, Like a Velvet Glove Cast in Iron. That's an amazing book. I guess you call it a book. Graphic novel, yeah. book. Graphic novel. Um, comic. Um, he also did Death Ray. He did, it's Daniel Boring, right? Daniel or David? Uh, it's oh, it's so close. And I can't even say it. Yeah, I haven't read that <laughs> one. Too. But that one's really great. That's noir. That's yeah. You should read it. I should read it. He did all the eight ball comics. He's just awesome. Um, if you haven't checked him out, I highly recommend it. Um, he is the only comic book professional who's ever been nominated for an Oscar. So yeah. Oh. Except he, well, technically we could extend this to Marjane. Or Marjan Satrapi. Oh, sure, sure. Was she nominated for an Oscar? For Best for well, best Animated Film. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, also, he, uh, I don't know if Paolo knows this, you probably do, but he did the, he illustrated the poster for the movie Happiness yep. by Todd Salons. That's a weird time. Um, and yeah. he also did the Criterion artwork for the Samuel Fuller movies, uh, Shock Corridor and Naked Kiss, and Naked Kiss is one of my favorite movies. Another movie that's going to come up on this podcast. Yeah, Naked Kiss is great. <laughs> um, so if you like his artwork, I would say check out those cases online <laughs> on Criterion's website, or watch those movies because they're both really great. Um, but yeah, okay, I'm done gushing about Daniel Klaus now. So your lesson is check him out. Check him out. Read the stuff. He's, yeah. a, he's a really significant, he's important a, artist. He's yeah. a worthwhile person and voice in the realm of graphic arts. Boom. Done. Awesome. <laughs> Do you have a teachable moment queued up? Teachable moment? Um, Tony. Tony. <laughs> what? Just a lesson that I've learned? That, that I've... Or it doesn't have to be a lesson, as just some, I just demonstrated. Basically, okay. just something that if, if a viewer... Once needs to take something away from Art School Confidential. Just anything. Like Carrie said, the thing to take away is that Daniel Klaus is great. He's a great voice. Uh, I don't want to piggyback on you, but I agree. I, I like the I like the cynicism that he brings to it. But like he adds, such, like he has the perfect amount of. They kind of make fun of this word too in the movie, but like he has the perfect amount of humanity to it. You mm -hmm. know, where it's it's so relatable. We've talked about this so much throughout this podcast, but I really, like, what I took most away from this film is just the little nuances in all of the characters. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, things specifically that stick out is, like, John Malkovich's performance. Like, little things mm -hmm. that I appreciated so much was just, like, when he would be talking on the phone, and when he was walking around, and he was, like, looking at everyone's, like, yeah. drawings, and he was, like, looking at drums, he's like, oh, yeah, good. Like, he just does little things like that so yeah. perfectly. But, like, all of those characters have, like, just the perfect little nuances that, that make it feel so real and, I don't know, just enjoyable. So I would say that. Keep an eye out for nuances and, and just appreciate the small details, I think. I think that that's a sign of a good movie. Absolutely, or, yeah. or a good performance. Yeah. If you can just add things that you think your character would do. Oh, yeah, totally. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about those little things because, you know... 
sometimes you think like, oh, that's written into the movie, and it's not. Yeah, it's totally yeah, not. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, John Malkovich was like, oh, I think my character would do this. You know. Yeah, and it makes like uh, great writing just that much better when mm-hmm. it's acted so well too. Yeah, that's great. That's mine. All right. Well, I guess my teachable moment is um, <laughs> if if really if we're going to talk about if I'm going to talk about auteurs of art school confidential more than anybody uh daniel Klaus is the auteur of this like even though he didn't direct the movie it like i said his handprint is all over it uh, even down to like when everyone gets their letter grades you can tell that he wrote every a yeah, like that's true. it's like it's it's really in there and like when people's sketches are his sketches and he produced so much of the art he made jonah's artwork he made jerome's artwork he must have made those triangles there's no way that he it was it had to be easy for him yeah um but the reason it is so much his is because Terry Zweigoff, as a director, he is not an auteur, but he is very good at, well, he has a very good skill set of approaching this type of cynical material honestly. He, it, it's very easy to be cynical and to just look down at everything and just be like, but we're all better. We're laughing down at it. And... With this, uh, with Ghost World, with Bad Santa, we're not really laughing down at these characters. Or our heroes aren't really laughing down at other people. I mean, Enid and Rebecca in Ghost World do pointedly mock people, but then they very quickly grow into the members of that same community they mocked in different ways. And Terry Swigoff doesn't have a strong directorial sense. Like, we kind of compared him... I, I compared him to Todd Salon's, like, Hollywood... Todd Salons, but mostly because... But he's avoided Hollywood for the most part. Who? Terry Zweigoff. Well, yeah, I mean, Bad Santa is a, definitely a Hollywood yeah, movie. Yeah, that's I say, true. And I say Hollywood, like, and Ghost World was a major release, too. And sure. Crumb was actually a surprisingly big deal when it came out. Yeah. Um, but, like, and actually Crumb and, and uh, Louie Bluey, his first two movies, are both Criterion releases now. Oh, wow. Um, but, anyway, um, Terry Zweigoff the reason I make the comparison to him is Todd Salon's style is very laid back and observational. And there is a very clear, I do think he Salon's is an auteur and has uh, specific things he's trying to do. Uh, but Terry Zweigoff doesn't really write his movies and he doesn't really have any unifying themes that he tries to insert in. There's no camera work that suggests an ulterior motive or anything like that. It's very much just like, I'm taking what I'm given and I'm going to present it in a way that's not condescending in a way that's like honest. And we do feel these things and there are people like this, but the people who feel these things are also conflicted too. And we, we every once in a while bring this up, but the val the, a really good non-auteur director should be able to build up the work that he's given. And the fact that Terry Zweigoff has this understanding of, the dark realities of the world, but also while not refusing to ignore them or bury them still sees empathy and good and is still able to combine those two things is really amazing. And it's kind of surprising that in our culture, which has an increasingly dark sense of humor that Terry Zweigoff would so thoroughly fall off the map just for making a movie, just for making a movie that apparently people like understandably didn't get because not a lot of people go to some sort of creative school. Like I said before, it's pretty much a waste of money for most people to do it. Uh, But 
he really needs another chance. And Carrie, you were telling me the other day that on IMDb he has his four upcoming projects. Four upcoming right. projects, and, and with IMDb, some of those or even all of them could end up not happening. But I would really love for him to get back in the game because I be trust. Awesome I trust. Yeah. yeah, if he's on it, then he's like. Yeah, one of them. He the main character is going to be Fred Armisen. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, and it's like yeah. a perfect. That's be a perfect, perfect casting. Team up, yeah. Well, and even like Bad Santa. Bad Santa is a movie that, granted, had rewrites by the Coen brothers, which had to have helped, but it's written by the guys who wrote, uh, the, remember the movie Cats and Dogs? Yeah. Yes. So after they wrote Cats and Dogs, their next they movie was Bad, Bad Santa. Santa. And then somehow it got to the Coen brothers, and the Coen brothers were like, let's do this. And Terry Zweigoff also did a little bit of a rewrite on it. And um, somehow that movie... Despite, they pulled that one off. And, yeah. that, and that movie is one of those, you see the uh, the imitations of it, like Mr. Woodcock yeah. and stuff like that, and they're just, just abs- or like Bad Teacher. Oh, a, God, like, yeah. Remember Bad Judge, that TV show that was on? Yeah. Like, like something no. like that. <laughs> People don't get it because what they're like, they think is like, oh, Bad Santa was funny because everyone Just liked raunchy. watching. Be, like, they well, like the raunchiness. Well, everyone likes a bad character. Yeah. But people forget that Bad Santa is insanely tragic. Like, oh you're watching God. a man who wants to die <laughs> try to drink himself to death. Yeah. Like, like it's, and so when the... How about the, the abandoned child, basically, the abandoned left child. with this just just when, like, he, neglectful <laughs> grandmother, like, completely <laughs> gives, aloof. Yeah, gives, the, the kid gives to Santa the, the report card with all C's on it. And just, <laughs> and he, like, I made you a pickle for Christmas and all that stuff. It's like... Well, to make some sandwiches yeah <laughs> all that stuff is so sad and like really they is. don't play it in a way where it's like yeah who gives a shit it's funny because it's so sad <laughs> yeah. and it's like you have to laugh because it's tragic it's and the fact that he despair and the fact that he that billy bob thornton redeems himself at all in the end like by trying to bring that stuffed toy to the kid yeah. getting shot yeah. and the kid yeah. like all the people seeing santa shot yeah <laughs> and everything like it's it's so good, and I really hope he gets another chance um, and reemerges and gets to make more stuff because he he tr- he really is one of um, he's not I, I he hasn't made enough to really be in the pantheon of like one of my favorite directors, but I I, I eagerly look forward to anything else by him. Yeah, and yeah, it's this movie is another good example of like what exactly he does right, even though. Like I said, you might not be you, you might not be the audience for what yeah. he's doing, but if you are a person who was in a creative field, you I, I can't I can't I couldn't see how you could watch this and not identify with it to some, some degree. degree. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Easily relatable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's pretty much it. Um Hey, thanks for coming, Tony. Yeah, yeah my pleasure, We know guys. you have a uh, limited time in <laughs> yeah, America. Thanks. Thank you for flying to, uh, from Chile specifically just to do this podcast. That's exactly why I'm here, back. guys. I love the secret cinema. No, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I hope thanks. we can do like a Skype one, too. Yeah, so yeah. We'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah, yeah. that'd be awesome. That'd be yeah, really fun. we'll be uh, uh, across the equator soon. Yeah. Somehow. That'll be awesome. We and and via Skype. Yeah. Yeah, if you find a good Chilean movie that we could do. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would be awesome. All right. I'll keep my eye out there. Especially because then, yeah, like, there's got to be a few ones, like, I really, have you seen No by Pablo Lorraine? I have not. No. There's a couple. We'll have to talk about this. All right. All right. But uh, I'm I'm Pablo. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tony. Thanks again, guys, for having me. Yeah, thanks, 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 Tony. (laughs) This has been The Secret Cinema, and we'll see you later.
is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paolocarasmus. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.